think so. Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship Church. I'm happy to see you all here. What I'm actually almost slightly more happy about is the fact that the snow is melting a bit outside. I don't know if you guys are pretty excited too. We're seeing spring inch a little bit closer. Um, to be honest, this, pe- this past winter has been kind of the harshest, like weather-wise, that I've, I think I've seen in the seven years that I've been living here. And uh, maybe, maybe the same is uh, true for you. But this past winter is nowhere near the worst winter that I can remember. So I'd like to tell you a story about that. For me, that was 1993. I don't know if you guys remember the blizzard of 1993. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. Oh, good. Um, we got uh, right around March, so when we thought it was over, not, not going to um, we got about three feet of snow in one shot. And um, so came up to about here on me, and the, the drifts would kind of slide all the way up maybe to where about the ceiling is here. And um, this is not a story about the snow. It's actually a story about... A, uh, an, an older lady who lived up the street from our family during the blizzard. She was divorced, and uh, I never saw or I never heard of any family ever visiting her at any point. Um, I didn't know of any community that she was a part of. She pretty much just stayed in her house all the time. Maybe you guys know people like that. And um, she would only ever talk about Jesus when she was yelling at a kid and using his name in vain. And um, so as far as I knew, she had absolutely no understanding of him. And uh, she was the uh, type of person, in a nutshell, who needed help very clearly, but would always refuse it. So during this blizzard, all this snow, she's out there shoveling her car out all by herself. And uh, after a few hours, she gets it mostly done, enough that she can drive off to work. And before she goes... She takes a chair, just a single chair, and she leaves it in that dugout spot. Now, that might seem strange, but if you're from the city, that's typically the universal sign for, don't take my spot. (laughs) Guess what somebody did? Um, While she was gone, one of the other neighbors in our neighborhood, um, who was in a similar life situation, pulls up, double parks his car, moves the chair, and just right into the spot, and goes into his house. And uh, this this was the lady's response when she got home. She took her shovel. Oh, that's a, that's a good start, right? <laughs> <laughs> and she just starts scooping snow and just heaping it onto this car. And she doesn't stop until it looks like the blizzard just happened all over again. And then... She gets a bucket, and she fills it with water, and she just pours it all over the top of this car so that it would freeze. I do not know what happened after that. (laughs) What I do know is that she had absolutely, as far as I know, no knowledge or understanding of Jesus, and so she didn't really have a lot of hope outside of this earth. And... I think by her actions, it's pretty clear that she had kind of given up on earth a while ago. She was just kind of done. And um, so this parking space, which is just a space, becomes like her home. This is heaven. This is mine. Don't touch it. And somebody did, and she went ballistic. And if, um, 
if you have no belief in Jesus, that's life for you, right? There's no nothing beyond here, so all I have is this stuff on earth, and if you take it from me, I'm going to destroy you. That's that's your belief if you don't believe in Jesus. You hope in stuff, and then when it's taken away, you get mad. Thankfully, that is not how Jesus lived. He did not live how so many of us live. Jesus' hope was completely rooted in God so that his future was secure, and you could tell his future was secure by the way he lived on earth. We're continuing through the story of Jesus in the book of John. We're going to be um, in uh, chapter 14 today. That's page 586 in your church Bibles, if you have them. So chapter 14. We're in the middle of Jesus' last night with his disciples. And Jesus is going to paint us an amazing picture of hope by promising heaven, which is an eternal home to people who otherwise have zero hope. And we're going to learn that our only hope to reach that home is Jesus. But it's a sure hope. And that strength alone enables us not only to trust in heaven for when it comes, but it gives us strength to grow his family and to work diligently here on earth while we wait for his return. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 14. I'm just going to stick to the first 14 verses this week. And then we're going to talk about the text. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you might be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's point one on your outline. We're going to start by sticking to the first three verses. Point one is Jesus is preparing an eternal home for his family. Let me start real quick by reminding you of the command that Jesus has just given his disciples previously in last week's sermon. Jesus has told his disciples to love people like he liked, like he loved people, which means completely selflessly, which means I die so that you can live. That's the command that Jesus just gave his disciples, which I imagine would be kind of hard to hear. That's a pretty high command. 
Not only that, Jesus has just also revealed Peter's betrayal, which I think would kind of emotionally flatten the room a little bit. Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. And Peter and Jesus has also just said to Peter, you're going to betray me. Not only that, Jesus has also just told the disciples that he's going to be leaving them soon. So I would imagine that the energy in the room would be kind of at a low at this point. Especially if it were a person that they had called their friend and, and lived with and worked with for the last three years. So I love that Jesus, right here in chapter 14, verse 1, immediately starts by comforting them. Here's what he says in verse 1. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because this is not a happy going away party. I mean, Jesus knows that these guys are going to fail him. Think about your own life. Have you ever failed someone? Had a close friend and maybe you fell short of their expectations or you broke a promise. And that person had every right to just leave. But maybe they didn't. Think about your life. Instead of that person leaving, maybe they actually choose to draw near. Maybe they actually choose to not only continue the friendship, but they actually deepen it. Has that ever happened to you? When you deserved to be abandoned, but your friend just, in a show of good faith, just draws near. Here's the comfort that happens in the midst of that. It shows that your friend still loves you in spite of you. That's Jesus' scenario right now. He knows the disciples are going to fail him, but he draws near and he deepens the friendship by actually offering them hope for the future when they didn't really deserve it. And here's how Jesus deepens the friendship. Verse 2, he gives them a picture of heaven. He's just told them how hard life is going to be on earth. There's going to be betrayal. You're going to love people. It's going to be hard. You're going to love people like I love people. But then he gives them a picture of heaven. He says, in my Father's house, that is God, there are many rooms. It's a picture of a really amazing home that the disciples have never been to. But they're going to love it when they get there. But I'd like you to focus away from maybe some of the visuals and the imagery. And I'd like you to lean more on the second half of the verse. When Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And he says this to the room. This is everybody. This includes Peter, the guy who he just said, you're going to fail me. This includes a guy named Thomas, which elsewhere in the scripture, he's what's known as a doubter. He's constantly just questioning Jesus. This includes every other disciple and every sin, past and present. Jesus knows them all, and he says that to the room anyway. I prepare a place for you. Allow that promise to sink in for a minute, because that's what it is when it comes from Jesus. It's a promise, and not just a promise, it's unbreakable. Because it's from Jesus. Ironically, some of the imagery, some of the language that's used here when Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a house, it's actually symbolic of a wedding. At least what a wedding looked like at around this time. See, back then when somebody got married, you know, when, when a guy really liked a girl and, and he proposed and she was like, oh goodness, yes. And he goes off, he goes off and he prepares a place for them to live. He leaves. He goes and he prepares it, then he comes back, and he gets her, and they get married, 
and they live happily ever after. And um, that's actually what's happening. In verse 3, Jesus continues, I'm not just preparing it for you. I'm going to come get you so we can be together. He's using wedding imagery. He's offering an eternal, loving, deep friendship with Jesus, with himself, with God, to men who do not deserve it. And this promise is made like a wedding vow. Now, I know to some of you that might not seem like a whole lot. Because maybe you've experienced a pretty broken marriage. Maybe you're, you were in one. Maybe you're in one now. Maybe you're, maybe you're the product of a broken marriage. Like your parents divorced when you were young, and you're just trying to figure life out. But everybody here knows what a broken promise feels like. The good news is Jesus doesn't break his promises. He can't because he's God. I mean, consider the previous chapter. Jesus knows how fallible the disciples are. And I'd like to think that what Jesus is doing right here is he's taking their eyes off of themselves and their obvious failures, and he's pushing them towards the real work, which is his work. These are small men, but they are being pursued completely by a loving Lord, and he's promising them an eternal home with him. And he says in verse 4, you know the way to heaven. You know how to get there, even though I'm coming to get you. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it basically means is you know how to get there, but you can't get there by yourself. You need help. I'd like to use an example. Has anyone here ever swam to Europe? (laughs) Anyone? Oh, we got one in the back. All right. (laughs) Um, But you know how to swim, right? Right? like this, breathe every now and then. Um, And you know where Europe is? It's east somewhere. (laughs) Right? You swim and you go east. Sounds pretty easy, right? You need help to get to Europe. You need a boat or something. You can't get there on your own. Intervention is needed. It's kind of a metaphor that can help you think about it. And Jesus joyfully offers the boat. He joyfully offers heaven, which is good because he's the only option. That's point two. Jesus is the only way home. Now, Thomas, right here, responds to Jesus. Just as Jesus got down offering them this amazing promise, Thomas says, where are you going? How will we know the way? In other words... So we're supposed to find our way to heaven, right? You're going to go somewhere, and then we're going to follow. So Jesus very kindly uh, repeats himself in verse 6 and says, no one can do that. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to get there, and it's me because I need to come get you. Now pause for a minute and just think about the disciples. Maybe you're not familiar with them. I'll try to help you paint a picture here. The disciples are blue-collar guys, if you know what that means. Most of them are fishermen. They work kind of hard. They're kind of lower middle class. They've probably been raised a lot, similarly to maybe how you were raised. And here's the way that most of us were raised. Here's the way that we're raised. What you want in life, you got to go earn it. Isn't that how we live life? You want a car? Go save up for a car. You want a wife? Work hard. Go get a wife. Some people actually treat cars and women the same way. 
Um, wouldn't Jesus' words be pretty hard to swallow? Jesus is saying, you're not going to help. I got to do all the work. If you guys, if, if you know how the mind of a man thinks, they don't usually respond well to, to free stuff. They want to go earn it. Or we say, what's the catch? Now, the, the first century Jews, that is the other religious folks around this time, uh, they had the exact same problem. A lot of Jesus' opponents. These are people who might have looked like Jesus' friends at the time, but as he kept preaching, they kind of drew away from him. Jesus, back in chapter 6, said the exact same thing to them. He was preaching and teaching, and he said, I'm the only way to heaven. you got to go through me. And um, a bunch of people left him. In fact, everybody left him except for these guys here, the disciples. They all left him. And now the disciples are hearing the same thing. I'd like to think that if I were one of the disciples, here would be my response. Wait a second. Back in chapter 6, you said, I'm the only way, and everybody left, and we stayed. That's what I would think. I stuck around. I've been staying with you all throughout this ministry. Like, doesn't that count for something? Like, I'm one of the good guys. That's what I would think. But um, the cool thing here about Jesus' words is that they're, they're very much one of a kind. When, Je- when Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the only way, he is in opposition to every religion other than Christianity. Every single one. Every other religion says one of two things. Either the number one, we get to heaven with good works, or there is no heaven. That's every other religion in a nutshell. There might be some new ones that I haven't read up on that might try and go some other direction, but um, in a nutshell, every other religion says, we get to heaven, we climb up to heaven on the ladder of our good lives, and then God lets us in. Christianity is different because it says Jesus has to come down to get us. That's the only hope. Our ladder is not tall enough, in other words. In other words, we can't swim to Europe. We need a boat. Have you ever tried to climb to heaven with your good works? I go to church every week. I'm a missionary. I tithe. And you just keep thinking to yourself, this is getting me in. You swear it's not, but in the back of your head, when life gets hard and you think that heaven's out of reach, you're like, but I've done all this good stuff. It's like Jesus isn't enough. That's what we, that's what we say when we do those things. And uh, so Jesus in verse 7, he pushes them a little bit. He says to the room, you don't know that God and I are one. But now you do know because you've seen God. In other words, he's saying, I'm God, you're seeing God, you're seeing me. But then Philip says, Lord, show us God and it will be enough. Now, let me explain what's going on here. It sounds like Philip is making a perfectly normal request, right? Like, God, could you give me a sign or something here? Philip is actually doing something very, very, very sinful. He is appealing to Jesus' authority while in the same sentence questioning it. He's saying, all-powerful God, Lord, would you prove your power to me? Doesn't that sound ridiculous when you actually break down the sentence? Now, I do this all the time. 
I say, I start off my prayer, it's real holy. I'm like, Lord, Father, you've created me. You're so good. And then I list off a bunch of things that I want God to do to prove to me that he's the Lord. Then I'll believe. I want him to make the first move. Do you ever struggle to believe like that? Like your prayers just come out and it's just, you just need, you're just always asking for signs. Lord, would you just kind of do this and then I'll believe and I'll trust you. Jesus' disciples are doing that right here. And um, what's amazing is that these are still the same guys that Jesus is preparing heaven for. Why is he doing that? Jesus knows their hearts, yet he chooses them, and he follows them, and he perseveres after them, and he promises good things to them. And look at his response in verse 9. He says, have I been with you so long, and you don't know me, Philip? He's pointing his finger right in the guy's chest. You don't know me. And that's the root issue. He's saying, Philip, you don't really believe I'm God, do you? You just, what do you think I am, like just some nice guy? That's why Jesus is leaning in so hard here, saying, I'm the way, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. If Jesus is not the only way to heaven, mankind is the only alternative. But the good news here is that Jesus has come down. He's as a man, he's working among them with his two hands and his two feet. And that's why in verse 10 he says, when you see me working, you see God working. Which means, verse 11, believe in me either because of what I say or because of my works. It's an either or statement. Jesus is basically saying, both my words and my actions point to the same conclusion. Jesus and God are inseparable. They're me. And that's the big question. Like, if that's true, and Jesus is God, and all I have to do is believe in him, and he leaves, and he's going to come back someday, what do I do until then? Like, if it's all him, is there a job for me to do? There certainly is. It's uh, point three in your outline. Until Jesus takes us home, we grow his family. It's verses 12 through 14. Jesus right away gives them marching orders in verse 12. If you believe in me, you do the works that I do. What are Jesus' works? Well, we covered that last week. It's serve and love selflessly, grow in God's family. You know, in other words, like I said earlier, I die so that you might live. We just get out there and we serve and we help people to see Jesus. In other words, we grow the family. That's our job. In other words, disciples... Go and work hard to help people see Jesus. Grow the family. Now, this mission applies to anybody who's a Christian. Anybody. And there's even more hope. There's actually hope here because that sounds like a tall order. But Jesus gives them real encouragement in verses 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask, I will do it that God will be glorified. And there's more, verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In other words, Jesus wants a packed house. He wants a lot of people in heaven. And he's given his disciples unbelievable power to get out and to go on mission. Amazing power. You can read about some of that in the book of Acts. But here's where we actually have to pause and we have to look at the world around us 
and we have to consider the state of things. There's a lot of Christians out there that aren't on mission for Jesus. Because in, in some ways they're too busy with their own mission. Is that you? Maybe. Maybe your life looks like it's for God's kingdom. Like you're a disciple, you're a good guy, you're kind of on the winning team. But what's constantly coming out of you is stuff like, I don't believe, show me, I need signs here. I'd like you to think of verses 13 and 14 because those verses struck me really hard. Look at the two things that Jesus says. Whatever you ask, I'll do it, that God will be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Anything, he says. When's the last time you said, Lord, and you prayed to him, and he asked for something, and he said, no? When's the last time that happened? That might have happened today. I'm sure that's happened in like the last year, for everybody in here who's a Christian. You pray for something, and it doesn't happen. And He said it would, right? Is he a liar? No. Um, maybe, you, maybe you pray to Jesus, and you're like, Lord, would you, would you heal my grandma? She's sick. I want you to heal her. She doesn't get better. Maybe you pray, and you say, Lord, I want, I, I want my family to come to know you. Would you, would you like help them to know you? I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving. I'm going to like tell them about you. Would you help them to like become a Christian right then? And it doesn't happen. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, maybe you pray and you're like, Lord, oh man, I really like that girl over there. And man, I could advance your kingdom so far. If you marry, <laughs> I will, we will just. Oh, storm the gates of hell. Me and her, if you just, she's so godly, and if a guy ever says that a girl's godly, it usually means she's really hot. <laughs> what a lot of guys mean <laughs> when they say that. And, um, and you, know, it's, you, you know, you look holy when you do that stuff, but it's really all about you, isn't it? Like, I, you know, I, I just really remember that girl. That's really what it comes down to. It's really not about advancing God's. It might be kind of, but it's really mixed. And um, and you know the cool thing is is that the disciples can really relate to you, if if that's you. In fact, Philip did it in verse eight. Look at verse eight. What did Jesus? What, what did Philip say? He said, "Lord, show us God." You know, it'll be enough for me if you show me. In other words, if you show me God, I'll, it'll be enough. I'll believe you from here on out, right? Did Philip actually get what he wanted? Because he he said, Lord, he did what Jesus asked. You know, you know, Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it in verse 14. Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us God. Did Philip get what he wanted? Well, kind of. He got Jesus. Jesus God. He got what he wanted, but I don't think he really wanted Jesus. I, 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 when I look at a guy like Philip, I think Philip wanted what we want. That he wanted some kind of a cosmic, like, zap. He wanted, like, a sign. He wanted, like, the, 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 the windows to, like, blow open and, like, light pours in and God shows up and he's, I am God and whoa, you know, and then everything's different for Philip. I think that's what Philip wanted. He wanted some fancy sign. And a lot of us are asking Jesus for stuff like that all the time. And Jesus doesn't give it to us. And when he does that for long enough, you just stop believing in him. Or just, you just don't trust him. 
You know, you doubt them. You say, you, you know, when I ask you for stuff, you don't give it to me. So why am I going to keep asking? And you just stop. You ever just stop asking Jesus for stuff? When in reality, that's probably the most loving thing he can do for us is not give us the things that we think are amazing and we think we want, but he sees our hearts. He knows, man, you know, man, if he gets married now, not nah, this guy got it. He, he has to grow a bit more here, here and here. Boy, if he gets married now, that's not going to be a good time. And he might see that. And the answer might be no, or it might be later. But, uh, you know, if we, if we keep making that mistake, if we keep just, if we keep just asking him for stuff, and when he doesn't give it to us, we, we instead of imploring and digging deeper, we just kind of give up. We won't trust him, and there certainly won't be any work on our part trying to tell people about him. No family growth, in other words. You're not going to tell people about Jesus because you've given up on him yourself. So why would you share? And that's the ugly implication. If you're not doing work by growing his family right now, it's because you don't believe in Jesus. That sounds really hard to say, but bear with me. Because in verse 12, that's exactly what Jesus has said to his disciples. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. If you just flip it around, if you don't do the works that I do, it's because you don't believe in me. Now you might be saying to yourself, hold on now, hold on Dan, I believe in Jesus, I do. It's just that, you know, I, I need more faith. Like I believe in him some. Does that count for something? I'd like to give you an example that should hopefully flesh this out. Think about the last really awesome movie that you saw or the really awesome product that you bought. Just think about that. Uh, my wife and I saw this one movie. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Frozen. Okay, like two of you have seen it. Made a bunch of money, right? Came out of Thanksgiving. It's still in theaters like four months later, which is like amazing. And, you know, like everybody's got like covers of the songs like on YouTube and stuff. And it's just everywhere. And a lot of people are talking about it. Or maybe you have like, you know, like the latest technological gadget and it's really cool. It's the first one out, you get it and man, you just, how many people did you tell about those things? How many times did you get on Facebook? Eh, Frozen was awesome. You talk about it or you buy something and you're like, man, that's really cool. Here's my point. Everybody is an evangelist. Everybody in this room is an amazing evangelist. It just comes out of what we think is great. But here's the thing. Jesus is God. He's bigger than some movie. He's bigger than some gadget. He is eternal and he's absolute. And what does that make, what does that make him rightfully on your list of things to do today? What does that make him on your priority list? If you make him anything less than your top priority, here's what you're saying. You don't exist. That's what you're telling God. And if you do that, look back at the earlier sessions, heaven is going to be nothing to you. You're going to have no hope. In your mind, heaven will be one of two things. And I said them earlier. Number one, it's going to be this, maybe this big cosmic after party that everybody gets into. Like you just kind of lower the standards and everybody's going to die and go to heaven and it's going to be like earth but longer. 
Think about it. Like, that's depressing. <laughs> or you're going to stop believing in heaven altogether. Can't get into it. No hope. No hope for heaven. So earth is it. And if the second one, if that one sounds like you, you are on the fast track to becoming that old lady dumping snow on people's cars. You might, all, you might already be there. Maybe you're just too polite to do it. But it's in there. And it's going to come out if you're pushed hard enough. You're going to trust in stuff instead of God because you're doing it now and it's just going to get worse. And all it's going to take to crush you is some guy taking your spot. That sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Here's the good news. What you believe does not define reality. Jesus defines reality because he's God. None of your struggles right now surprise Jesus. He knows you completely, whether you're a Christian or not. He knows you. And he wants your eyes off of you and onto him because he's the only way out. You don't need a lot of faith. You just need to take whatever faith you have and you need to put it in Jesus. In other words, stop trying to get to heaven with your busted up raggedy life and place it at the cross. It is not about your broken little works. It's about Jesus' work. It always was. I mean, look at the disciples. Their weakness is on total display. But what did Jesus say? He said, I'm making a home for you. And they respond by not getting it. He doesn't even wait for them to get it. He paid for their room in advance. And what's really cool is that one day they got it. It's in the book of Acts. After Jesus is resurrected, they get it. And you can see the legacy of their work anytime you look around. Because if you're a Christian today, it's because it's stuff the disciples did. What a cool legacy. It's all because Jesus was so kind to just work with them and promise things to them and give them good things and think less about himself and more about helping them fix their eyes on his work. And here's the thing. If you're trusting in Jesus, your privilege as you wait for Jesus' return is this. Go and tell people about Jesus. In other words, go and make his family bigger. Your privilege is to do what Jesus is telling the disciples to do here. It's not a crazy obligation, even if it feels like it. It's actually a privilege. So what might that look like practically? Like, what do you actually do with that on a daily basis? Two things, and I'm done. Number one, don't be ashamed of your small faith or the small faith of others. Remember that it's never too late. Because for a lot of you, you might have had a really messed up upbringing, and you're like, man, I just blew the first 18 years of my life because nobody cared. You have an opportunity to give the Lord the rest of your years. It's not too late. Because I'm always looking horizontally at the kids that grew up, and they were homeschooled, and solid, and they, man, they already know Romans better than I do, and they're like 10. (laughs) And I look around, and I look horizontally, and it just discourages me. Just offer God what you have. Or maybe, yeah, maybe you're in the latter years of your life and you're like, I don't, I don't really know if, if, it, if there's a point to this, if I do it. There is. 
And as you deal with others, remember how patient Jesus was with the disciples. I mean, how patient has Jesus been with you? I mean, the last breath you just took, did you earn that? What did you do to deserve that? He gave it to you. He got you up today. And if you're not a Christian, that's your hope too. Take your busted up faith and your broken life and offer it to Jesus. He'll use it. That's the first thing. Don't be ashamed of your small faith. Second thing, enjoy the opportunity to step out in weakness. I could probably preach a whole sermon on this point alone, but I'm just going to focus on things that you can do right here in the church. Number one, here's, here are ways you can step out in weakness. Number one, are you afraid of children? <laughs> they frighten you or intimidate you. You've got some parents raising their hands. <laughs> Help in the nursery. Like seriously, take steps to work with kids and to, to grow skills and so that one day you're not afraid of them because you might be a parent. Go help in the nursery. Or you could just, you could just babysit like the kids of some of the parents in here so they can finally maybe go on a date for a couple hours. That'd be great. Got some <laughs> nods in the back. Here's something you can do even more. Babys- like offer to babysit proactively. Don't wait to be asked. Don't be like, oh, I'll babysit if you like come and ask me. Go up to somebody, go up to a parent and say, I would like to babysit your child. I want you to be able to go out with your spouse or go do some stuff. When can that happen? You will, you will not, you will probably not hear the word no. If you do, send them to me and we'll deal with uh, church discipline there. <clears throat> so just offer, just proactively. Just get out there. Number two, are you not a morning person? Do you hate getting up? You should get up and get here early. You should help set up chairs. You should help with the excellence team. They do a lot of work. You could help and, uh, you know, maybe give the, the sound guy or the, the, you know, maybe give them kind of a, a break. Or you could, you know, you could watch the kid, like the, the worship team. They, they get here early and they practice. Some of them have kids, and the kids have to run around. There's nobody to watch them. Come and watch them. You get number one and two in one shot if you do that. <laughs> number two, are, number three, are you a horrible cook? Do you hate cooking? You should learn how to cook, and then you should cook for a family. Because there are families here that they're having kids, or life's just really hard right now, and you could make them food. And it doesn't have to be fancy. Now... If you fall into the category of you burn water like it's really bad, you can probably order a pizza for them. That's fine, too. <laughs> Here's another way. Are you not outgoing? Are you not outgoing? Do you, like, not know how to talk to people? Find a growth group and invest in the growth group. You can practice talking to people because these people are nice you can practice on them and they'll work with you and then you can go worry about the difficult people later you can learn how to interact with people and you can learn a lot more about god's word and then here's kind of the big summative thing that's that's going on here here's kind of your big your big landing point lean into people lean into their lives get to know them go to lunch with them Ask how you can pray for them and then actually pray for them and keep praying for them and ask them, hey, I'm praying for this thing. How's that thing going? And wait to hear their reply. Keep leaning into people. 
It's actually a lost art, but you can do it. The cool thing is, is, is that as you're doing these things, you're imaging Christ himself. Because you're caring for other people more than you're caring about your own weakness. But the only way that's, that's going to happen is if your trust, busted up as it is, is in Jesus. Because that's going to be more than enough. And as we trust Jesus, we can actually love people here, and we can go out and love the world. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is just 